Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME-CE credit. Bill C. is your family physician partner in practice and comes by your office. His patient, Juan R., is a 56-year-old male with hypertension and type 2 diabetes who called your office yesterday with new-onset diarrhea. He helped his elderly neighbor, Mary, last week with her taxes, all the while wearing his mask. Juan is concerned as Mary just let him know that she's COVID-19 positive. The staff wanted you to know that they ordered Juan's COVID test and it too came back positive. Your partner, Bill, is about to call Juan and let him know about the results and questions, what is the best advice to help patients in the outpatient setting when they're diagnosed with COVID-19 infection? Hi, this is Frank Domino and joining me today is Dr. Paul Sachs, Clinical Director of the Infectious Disease Clinic at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Frank. Uh, It's been a while since you and I spent some time talking about COVID. And um, increasingly, uh, my uh, ambulatory needs for managing this viral infection uh, are going up. Uh, I I realize uh, in the news lately, there's been some trends showing numbers are going down, but certainly within the last two to three months, it's uh, not a week goes by where in my own small practice, I'm I'm having more and more positive patients all asking me, what what are the best treatment options? So maybe that should be our first question. Considering Juan's new diagnosis and he's home and he's doing okay, what treatment options should we offer Juan for his newly diagnosed COVID-19 infection? That's a really important question and one that we're still uh, in great need of better treatments for for outpatients with COVID-19. A lot of the focus has been on inpatients where we talk about remdesivir and dexamethasone and tocilizumab, but what about your patient at home, especially your patient at home who might be at high risk for progression? I think the first thing to mention is that patients with relatively few days of symptoms could be eligible for the monoclonal antibodies. And they are kind of difficult to get and kind of difficult to administer, but they do appear to reduce the risk of progression to disease that requires either emergency room visit or hospitalization. And one thing that I find very useful is right now, um, one of our local specialty pharmacies, CVS Carum, is offering a service to some people in some areas with a home infusion. And I think that is actually the ideal use of the monoclonal antibodies rather than they're having to go to a facility. If you do happen to be affiliated with a facility that has monoclonal antibodies, that is another uh, potential treatment. Uh, I will emphasize that it is not so easy to do. It does take a while to set this up, so it puts some pressure on the providers, Um, but it is uh, an effective treatment when given early. It is not an effective treatment when it's given after a prolonged period of symptoms. So one of my efforts was to try to to have a patient get monoclonal antibodies, and I had some trouble convincing the insurance that this was a worthwhile thing. Um, Any suggestions if we go down this route? 
Well, right now it is actually not uh, being charged to insurance routinely. It is something that the um, that is being covered. So um, what, what's been a bigger problem is really getting it to the people who are at greatest risk. Um, people who are young and healthy do so well that they're not interested. Uh, people who are um, kind of older with comorbidities, they're scared. Um, and, and really it's been targeting the, the, the patient populations who are eligible for this um, and getting them the treatment that's been such a challenge. You know, right now, a lot of it is sitting on shelves and not being utilized. We, at our own institution, we only have the ability to give uh, treatments Monday through Friday. Of course, that leaves out two-sevenths of the days, and also during um, only only about five to ten cases a day. So during the surge, it was it was really very difficult to expand beyond that. That's why I mentioned the CVS Corum option. Okay, so beside monoclonal antibodies, is there anything else I can I can suggest for most patients? Yeah, you know, one one other thing to mention before we go on to the things people can receive off-label is there are some really interesting clinical trials being done in the outpatient setting, and let me mention a few of them. Um, and they're all things that basically people can enroll at home just using their online internet connection. Uh, one of them is a vitamin D study. And I really like this study, not just because it's being run out of our institution, but it's a national study. The, the lead uh, author is Joanne Manson, who's very famous from the Physician and Nurses Health Study. She's a lot of experience doing home studies. And it's a comparison between vitamin D and placebo. And the great thing about this study is that it also enrolls the household members. So it's a test not just of treatment of COVID-19 with vitamin D or placebo, but also of prevention. So you can get enrolled not only the people in, in who has COVID-19, but also the people in the household who don't. And then it just has a couple of uh, measurements, including um, you know phone interviews, internet surveys, and then a finger finger stick blood blood sample. They just mail the, the the pills right out to them. So that's vitamin D, and that's called the Vivid trial. So if you want to find it online, it's vividtrial.org. Another one I actually think is quite promising is, believe it or not, uh, there is a antidepressant that you might be familiar with called fluvoxamine that has anti-inflammatory properties through an off-target mechanism that has nothing to do with its treatment of depression or treatment of uh, OCD. And fluvoxamine in a pilot randomized clinical trial actually demonstrated reduced risk of progression in a, it was published in JAMA, and then a second study for a quite quite large outbreak showed that people given fluvoxamine actually did not progress, whereas those who chose not to receive it were more likely to do so. And there's a study being run out of WashU St. Louis called uh, Stop COVID Trial, and that's at stopcovidtrial.wustl.edu. And again, people can enroll in this study. They'll be mailed the pills, and they'll be mailed a pulse oximeter also to monitor their progress. So I really like both of those studies because your patients don't have to go anywhere and they can roll right from the comfort of their own homes. And then the third study I should mention is um, something that is, uh, you know, call, if you go to the website, riseabovecovid.org, just all one word, riseabovecovid.org, it's an NIH sponsored study. And there are study sites all around the country um, and probably one near you. And this is a single infusion of a monoclonal antibody variety of being tested. And this one also includes home care services to follow people up after they get their infusion. So those are just three studies I wanted to mention real quickly. The monoclonal antibody one, how would people find that? So basically, if they go to the, um, if they go to the website, it's called riseabovecovid.org you will then have a uh, very pretty website, and then you'll have a, a link, a button that says, find a study site. 
and then you'll be able to actually patients can self self refer to this one. So it's really it's a it's a very interesting study, and it's being sponsored by the NIH. That, that's wonderful. So those are three great options to enroll patients into trials. Well, what if your patient says, no, 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 just shouldn't I take an antibiotic or some zinc or something? <laughs> well, I'm not very optimistic about zinc. Uh, I think there are decent data on uh, vitamin D enough so that this vitamin D study is going on. I don't think it's a, a slam dunk, but you know, taking vitamin D is very unlikely to be harmful. And you and I have discussed this before. Um, I don't think mega doses should be given, but a, a vitamin D supplement is quite reasonable. I do want to mention uh, ivermectin. There's a tremendous amount of interest in ivermectin globally uh, for both treatment and prevention of COVID-19. For those of you who are not familiar with the drug, it's actually an antiparasitic agent that globally is used for treatment of strongyloides and then also is used for treatment of body lice and head lice. Um, it actually has some in vitro activity against COVID-19, uh, the virus uh, SARS-CoV-2, and might actually uh, work. But it, the clinical trials thus far are very, very hard to parse because a lot of them have been done in uh, low resource settings and we don't have all the data yet. But, uh, but ivermectin has become an extremely popular drug to prescribe in some regions more than others. Uh, in particular in South America, I have colleagues in South America and in Mexico who say that, that a lot of the providers there are giving ivermectin to everyone. I think it's very important that I should mention that Merck, the company that makes ivermectin, has explicitly come out and said this is not an approved treatment for COVID-19, and they do not recommend its use in this context. However, I think you know I should just mention it because it's so common. I will mention another treatment that's uh, very probably very very familiar to um, to primary care doctors, of course, and that's inhaled budesonide. That's an inhaled steroid, and in a, a small randomized clinical trial, a pilot study. There, they did find that inhaled budesonide led to a lower likelihood of people requiring, again, an emergency room visit or a hospitalization. And that's promising. And then it also, it's kind of counterintuitive because early on in the pandemic, people were sometimes advised to stop inhaled corticosteroids. So um, I will, I will, uh, I can mention a few other things. I just wanted to see if you had any questions about those so far. Well, I, I think it's very curious that, um, yeah, I remember us probably chatting about our asthmatics and our patients with COPD and should they continue or not their steroids. And you, you, you said, you know, not enough data, keep taking care of them just like you would and, and don't, don't, don't give them oral steroids, but unless they have an exacerbation, but continue the inhale. So I think that's, that's pretty curious. So I think for one, a lot of this is supportive care. And um, offering them the opportunity to be enrolled in a study, uh, I, I think those things make sense. Probably it's not a good idea for you to be prescribing ivermectin or even uh, the Fluvox without you know, him being appropriately enrolled in a study. Um, and um, if you have a patient, if Juan had asthma, would it be okay to say, look, you know, just uh, let's switch you from uh, uh, your current inhaled steroid to bunesonide. Would would that make sense or yeah. just move on what he's taking? I, I don't really, uh, I don't have a strong opinion about that, but I do, I do think that this uh, favorable signal on this randomized clinical trial, even though it's small, does make me feel much more comfortable about using inhaled corticosteroids in COVID-19 and potentially as a way of dampening down some of the inflammatory response that later on in the disease can lead to deterioration. I do want to mention one other anti-inflammatory because it got a lot of news a few weeks ago, although the news now under further uh, scrutiny hasn't looked quite so good. And this is a uh, colchicine, 
Um, a fairly large Canadian trial um, randomized people to colchicine versus placebo. It was over 4,000 participants. And while the primary endpoint did not show a benefit for colchicine, um, it, they actually did show it in the people who were proven PCR positive. Uh, and the primary endpoint was hospitalization or death. Uh, and so if you kind of think of it as like preventing the most severe outcomes, the colchicine did appear to do that. Um, the, the, the problem we have with these data is that it turns out that, that there was an imbalance in the randomization and that at baseline, there were way more men in the uh, placebo arm. And as you know, um, men do worse with COVID-19 than women. So um, colchicine data, I think, are, are still premature. But these are at least some outpatient things that people are trying that have at least some, some data behind them. This is a great overview of currently what what's being considered, and 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 it really inform it gives us some things to talk about with our patients. Now Juan tells you that he's feeling pretty well. He's had some loose stool. He's got no respiratory symptoms, but his cousin went from being diagnosed with some mild respiratory symptoms to being admitted to the ICU within two weeks. How would you advise us to track Juan's symptoms? Should we tell him to get a home pulse ox? Should we have him do some walking exercises? How do we follow patients in the outpatient setting and, and advise them about progression of illness? Um, well, you know, as, as you know, um, from, from the spring surge and then this most recent one, the, the people who are most likely to do worse are people who are older, people who have comorbidities, people who are, who are overweight. Um, you know, it's really uh, striking how age discrimination plays a big role <laughs> in this disease. Um, and what I, I, I would say is that people who are not feeling well, who feel like they're starting to get better for a few days and then start to deteriorate, especially in days sort of three to seven, that's, that's very concerning because that usually means that something's kicking in from an inflammatory perspective. So people say, you know, my first day I felt fatigued and a little chilled and then I started to feel better. And now I'm on day four and my temperature is higher than it's ever been and I'm coughing more, uh, I, I get very worried. And I do think if you can get people pulse oximeters, if they can somehow get them, I know that they're not, you know, they're not they're not cheap, but they're they've they've come way down in price and they're way more available than they were. I do find that that is reassuring to both to to patients and to me uh, to hear that their pulse oximeter is 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 safe. I mean, I have a recent patient of mine who was a man in his uh, mid 60s. Um, you know, was obsessively looking at it and, and would occasionally, you know, panic when it, when it went down into the low 90s. But overall, it was steadily from 95 to 99. And that was just great and reassuring. Okay. Um, so if we did go that route, when I've had a couple of patients use pulse oximeters and they'll, they'll send me messages saying, I'm feeling better, but this thing says it's 88%. Is that good? And I said, well, actually, no, that's not very good. <laughs> Um, is there any sort of cutoff that we can use or should we make this a clinical, primarily a clinical decision? It's a combination of the two, you know, as you mentioned, of, of something that's below 90 would be, very, would be very concerning, especially for someone who's been sick for a while and has those comorbidities. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's, let's move on from Juan. Um, outside of the, the question I get asked most frequently after how can I get a vaccine is, what about sending my kids to school? Recently, the CDC said that, you know, schools should at least reopen in some hybrid fashion. Um, any th we know that children tend to do pretty well. There are those rare circumstances when children get very, very ill associated 
with with this infection. But any thoughts about the impact on the community with, for the most part, um, teachers not being able to get immunized because most of them are, are under the age of 65 and uh, the ability for the children to transmit this infection home to mom and dad or grandpa. So uh, are you asking me to weigh in on the controversy of whether schools should open? Yes, actually I am. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are because it's hard for me to give advice. What people ask me what, what I think, should they send their kids to school? Should they not send them to school? It's hard for me to know how to help them. Yeah, well, the first thing I'm going to say is is really going to comment about COVID-19 in, in children. Uh, and, and there's a real difference between the elementary school ages and then the teens and young adults. Um, the elementary school kids, as you know, do very well with this infection, clear it very quickly, very rarely get that sick. And there's some evidence that they're even less likely to transmit it. Um, it's, it's when you get to be sort of ages 13 to 18, that that's those school ages. Those are the primary drivers of COVID-19 transmission from schools. And, and so I don't think we should really lump it all together. Uh, I do feel like there's been some, uh, some you know, polarized discussion about this so that people don't listen to the other side. Uh, there's a tremendous disadvantage to children to having them not go to school. And it, it is a disadvantage that is way greater on the, um, on the people who are already suffering from tr lots of inequities in education and health. Uh, and, and so what can we do to make schools as safe as possible? Well, uh, key, key, absolute key is ventilation. And I, and I don't feel like that gets enough attention. Uh, people have talked more about, you know, cleaning surfaces, uh, but, but ventilation is so important. And whatever we can do to make schools have adequate ventilation would be an investment worth having. Another is, is mask, universal mask wearing, of course, uh, much, much more important than we had thought at the beginning. And then the last thing is, is you know, some of the, the uh, hygiene theater, like stop paying attention too much to that. I already mentioned the surfaces, but also these days where the school is actually closed for cleaning. I mean, that's, that's just ridiculous. Uh, there's really no evidence that that is doing any, any good at all. Uh, so, so, so improving ventilation, um, and then uh, getting the vaccines out as, as soon as possible. You know, I'm, I'm all in favor of, of vaccinating teachers. <laughs> well, thank you. That's, that is an awesome answer and very insightful. Um, so you mentioned vaccines. Can you tell us how we're doing with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? I know it's supposed to be, uh, it, it's been sitting waiting for the FDA to evaluate it yeah. for quite a while now. So, so the FDA has had the data for, for a couple of weeks, at least two to three weeks. It does take a while to go through all the data because it's really quite a voluminous amount. And, and this is actually good. Uh, I like the fact that our FDA so carefully scrutinizes the information. And then this week, uh, there will be the hearing that um, goes over all those data. And then it is highly likely that the FDA will give uh, emergency use authorization to this vaccine. So we'll have three vaccines for use. Um, what's that going to mean? Well, it'll increase our supply almost immediately because Johnson & Johnson says they have, you know, tens of millions ready to ship out. And the other thing is that this is a single dose vaccine. So there are a lot of people who now have vaccinated status. Um, uh, you know, people have now said, well, maybe I should wait for the more effective Pfizer and Moderna vaccines because they looked better in the clinical trials. But I think it's really important for people to remember a couple of things. First, 
the um, Johnson Johnson vaccine was done at a time when both there were circulating variants that were less susceptible to the original vaccines, and then also when there was a surge in cases. Uh, and you know there were way more cases in uh, November, December, January than there were in the months of uh, July, August, September. I mean, there were even investigators in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine studies that were worried they wouldn't have enough cases to really show that the vaccines were effective. That just shows how quickly things changed. So, so the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, for it to be as effective as it was under those difficult circumstances is really quite remarkable. And I would advocate strongly that anyone who is offered a chance to get a COVID vaccine, go ahead and get it. Um, this vaccine does prevent against severe disease. Uh, the, so, you know, it will convert, even if you get COVID-19, it will convert a potentially life-threatening disease to a equivalent of a mild cold, probably. Uh, and it is pretty effective. It was about 75% effective with just one shot. So I strongly recommend that people get it. Uh, and this will also come at the same time that we're having an increased supply of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. So therefore, we should be in much better shape in April and May than we uh, have been so far. I really appreciate you you pointing that out. I, I People think, oh, should I? What kind of vaccine? You, you should, the, the best vaccine you need to get right now is the one that you can get right now. And uh, the Johnson & Johnson ability to prevent the severe hospitalizations, the ICU admissions and the deaths, that is a fantastic outcome. And we, we you think, oh, you need, I need my tetanus shot or I need my pertussis vaccine or my measles vaccine. This, this vaccine is incredibly effective. And yeah, the Moderna and the Pfizer ones look a bit better on paper percentage-wise, but on an individual basis, this is this is a it's a really it's a yeah. really good thing. Great, and if, uh, if in the future we need to have boosters or changes, you know we can make those adjustments. But right now we're just trying to get out of this 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 difficult cycle of uh, of surges and then cases dropping and then surges again. Really want to avoid this being something that fills our hospitals up. All right, so this this comes close to home. Um, well, now that you've had the vaccine, can we go out to restaurants again? So I, I've heard this from family members and friends and gee, why, you know, should we be, should we be going out to indoor, should, should indoor things open up uh, more so, or should we, even right now, is it safe to go have dinner at your local restaurant? So let's, let's uh, go to an intermediate step first. Um, what about, what about socializing in a more uh, normal way with friends um, and, and especially vaccinated. Let's say, let's talk about socializing with vaccinated friends. I, I'm completely comfortable making the recommendation that yes, you can socialize with vaccinated friends. Just like I'm comfortable telling a 75 year old woman who's received the vaccine that she can see her grandchildren again, who she hasn't seen in over a year. I mean, the whole point of the vaccines is to prevent severe illness and that's what they do. Um, now, whether you can socialize with unvaccinated friends, it really kind of depends on this strange issue of whether you as a vaccinated person will transmit the virus to them. Uh, and I think that's been a horribly overblown concern. I, it is definitely po it's possible, um, but it is unlikely uh, and much less likely than if you are an unvaccinated person socializing with them. So, so I think that socializing, again, becomes an option for people who are vaccinated. And that's exciting and great news. Why am I even pausing about restaurants? Well, restaurants are a particularly uh, dangerous 
setting for COVID-19. And that is because it includes no mask wearing or very little mask wearing, uncontrolled ventilation and crowds. And if no, no matter what study is done, the risks of COVID-19 are always highest in restaurants, bars and coffee houses. And there's a reason for that. Uh, people go there, they don't wear masks, they socialize, the ventilation is not controlled, et cetera. So I would say that until case numbers are down a bit further, holding off on restaurant dining just a little longer is the way to go. Uh, but of course, everyone will make their own decisions. All right, here's my last question. Um, it got asked by my uh, second to last patient this afternoon. Summer's coming. Can I plan a summer vacation or should I wait till the fall? Well, here's here's a, where, again, I'm going to say the vaccines give us a kind of uh, freedom. If you're talking about a vaccinated person or an unvaccinated person. Well, he was unvaccinated. He's in his 50s and he's trying to figure out his summer plans. Well, uh, very likely that by the uh, summertime he will be vaccinated. And what I have been saying for people who are thinking about air travel is that once you've been vaccinated, that becomes a much safer endeavor. It's never been that dangerous. I mean, it's amazingly rare to have people get COVID-19 on flights, fortunately. Uh, and then if you add that, the protection of the vaccines, then 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 you're in good shape. Uh, so I would say that if people want to travel this summer, uh, there's a good chance they should be able to do so. Again, uh, doesn't mean you then immediately jump into crowded rock clubs uh, with, you know, standing standing with, with, with no inches between you and the next person. But it does give us a kind of freedom that we haven't had now in quite some time uh, to think about a, a vaccinated population, predominantly vaccinated population, and also um, a, a situation where case numbers are down. And I hope they continue to trend down. All right. Well, I, 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 I'm going to put you on the spot for one last question because I know people are going to ask. People have misused this term or over-exaggerated the concept of herd immunity. Um, when, in at least in the U.S., do you think that might um, be something we can say, okay, we're definitely at that point now and, and uh, at least in most people's minds, uh, they can return to normal? Well, it really does, does depend on, on how many cases are being diagnosed in your community at any given time. Um, and it also depends on how, how much COVID-19 has been in your community. So let me give you two, two contrasting examples. If, you, if you're a person who's lived in a very densely populated area of Boston and you're a frontline worker, and you and several people you know have had COVID-19, and not only that, but they've done zero positivity surveys in your community and find that 40 to 50% of people there already have been infected. You compare that to someone who lives five miles away and as soon as March hit, you know, took off for their country home, um, there is no co herd immunity in the, in the latter. That person has zero immunity. The chances of them having herd immu any immunity at all is, is not, nothing until they get vaccinated. So we can't make generalizations about herd immunity about the population at this point or even close. Um, I, I know that there was a very widely publicized um, perspective published in the Wall Street Journal last week that we're rapidly heading in that direction, but I don't think we're really there yet. And, and it really will take a much more broader immunization rollout in the next several months before we get there. I, I, I can't reiterate that enough. I, I don't see us having 
the ability to have the, what, what herd immunity implies to people for another four to six months. It, it just doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. And maybe it'll be three or four months, but it's not going to be two months or whatever was, was hypothesized. So April. I, April. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, I mean, that'd be awesome, but I think that's someone's dream. It's not, it's not anything based upon science or reality. It, it so. would be, it would be awesome. Uh, let's just say, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> well, Paul, in the middle of this mess, I again thank you for taking a bunch of time out of your life to to help us in the community-based setting figure out what's the best the best things for us to do. Uh, I can't thank you enough, and um, I look forward to us having some more podcast recordings that don't begin with a case involving <laughs> coronavirus. <laughs> All right, I look forward to that too, Frank. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.